This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin. And today I'm joined by Sam Jeske, Senior Fellow here at MP, and David Litt, former speechwriter for President Obama and New York Times bestselling author of Thanks, Obama. And he's out now with a new book called Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think. David, it's great to have you on today. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Uh, It's great to have you. I'm hoping that you could start. I gave a little bit of a quick background there for our audience members, but maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit more about your journey. You seem to have had a fascinating career path uh, despite being relatively young. Um, Tell us, how did you get where you are today? Sure. I started out um, actually not planning on going into politics. I started out thinking I was going to go into comedy writing. I was in an improv group in college. I interned at The Onion, the, the humor mag- or the magazine, the comedy newspaper. And then I saw Barack Obama give a speech. This was in 2008. I was a senior in college, and he had just won the Iowa caucuses in the primaries, and he gave this speech. And by the end of that speech, I thought, you know what? No matter what this guy is doing, I want to be a part of that. And so I finished college and I worked uh, just as a volunteer in the primaries until I graduated. And then I got in my car and I drove out to Ohio and I was a field organizer for a couple of months on the Ohio campaign. And then um, to make a long story short, we can go into the details later if you want. I ended up moving to D.C. without any sort of plan, but becoming a speechwriter first at a firm called Westman Writers, which does speeches in the private sector. And then a couple years later, moving over to work for Valerie Jarrett, who was President Obama's senior advisor, and after that, for the president himself. And so I left the White House in 2016 and started writing more stuff, uh, you know, under my own name. So I, I've written, uh, I wrote a memoir that was the first book, and then this this new book that we'll talk about. And uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting, you know, certainly never would have expected to be doing any of these things. Uh, in one way or another, but I've gotten to do a lot of really cool stuff. I'm very lucky so far. And so your first book, Thanks Obama, My Hope You Change Your Years in the White House, um, as Nathan mentioned, came out in the fall of 2017. And so for someone who hasn't read that book, can you tell us a little bit about the story you tried to tell? Sure. Uh, For me, I I had read a lot of books, and I certainly had access to even more books, about what it was like to be at the White House during the pinnacle of your career. And, you know, if you're in the, the later stages, uh, you know, I don't want to name an age, but when I started at the White House, I was 24. So if you're not 24, if you've been doing this for a long time, and this is kind of your mark on history. And because I started at the White House when I was pretty young, I didn't feel like, you know, there was anything that was quite the same in terms of what is it like to be in the White House when you're 24 years old and not that important. I mean, I was not, you know, a senior, senior staffer at the White House. When I left, I was kind of in the junior ranks of the senior staff. Uh, but I certainly was not, you know, to use uh, the Hamilton phrase, I was not in the room where it happened, um, you know, uh, except for on extremely rare occasions. 
And so I wanted to write about that. What was it like to be in public service as a young person? And I wanted to write about what it is like to go through the, the thing that I think anyone in public service goes through, which is some measure of disillusionment, but without this idea of, well, now that I know how the world really works, I'm a cynic, because that's not how I feel about it. Uh, to me, there's this false choice between being disillusioned and, and cynical and being idealistic and naive. And I don't think that's true. I mean, today, as we're talking, I feel simultaneously disillusioned and idealistic. And I think at its heart, that's what the book was about. It was also about the times I embarrassed myself in front of the president. Well, we'd love to dig deeper into those later in the podcast, but now I want to turn to some of your more recent writing, uh, The Democracy in One Book or Less. You know, you you really approach uh, the United States political system from a holistic perspective, diagnosing some of the problems that are plaguing us. Um, you know, I'm just kind of curious, if you had to touch on three to four topics that are truly standing in the way of progress, the ones that come immediately to mind for me are voter suppression, gerrymandering, dark money, and kind of the right-wing media industrial complex. Um, what did you What did you take out of doing the research for your book, and uh, what are those solutions that you think uh, we can be uh, implementing and working towards a more just, more equal uh, union? Democracy in one book or less was a book that was really trying to be about everything, which is, I think, a dangerous thing for a book. But I hope that I pulled it off. And the reason I thought it was worth trying was because actually all of this stuff is connected. So in the book, you know, I go through um, the, some of the topics you mentioned, uh, voting rights, then the attacks on voting rights, gerrymandering, um, the rise of partisan media, uh, the filibuster, judges, you name it, campaign finance. But what I tried to do was explain this in a way that was succinct and readable, where someone like me would actually finish it. Uh, you know, the way I put it is I was trying to write the funniest book ever about political science. And I think by that low standard, I'm pretty sure I succeeded. But I also think it's important to recognize the way that all these things are connected. I mean, for me, what's been really gratifying in the few weeks since the book has been out is to hear from readers who have had that kind of aha moment when they say, oh, okay, so our campaign finance system is a mess. And our way of nominating judges has completely changed and become more partisan. And those aren't two separate problems because the same judges who rule on campaign finance and further destroy the campaign finance system, that leads to even more court packing because the people who are benefiting from the unfair campaign finance system end up winning elections and getting to appoint future judges. And so all of these things are tied together. So I think all the things you mentioned are quite important. Uh, but the way I look at it is not that, you know, it's like if you did this one thing or these three things, you fix everything. It's more that there's all these different things playing off each other. And then when you fix one problem, it works in reverse. Every time you fix a problem, it helps make all the other problems easier to fix. But I'd be more than happy to go into some specifics as well. Well, I actually want to dig into one of the comments that you made. You said you tried to write the funniest book in the political science genre, and I was flipping through it, and it opens with you kind of stumbling around in Kentucky outside of a fraternity house. I was wondering, perhaps you could share that story for our audience just to give them a, a bit of a feel of what the book is actually like to read. Sure. When I started writing democracy in one book or less. I didn't really know what I wanted to write about because it turns out that despite the fact that I worked in the White House and despite the fact that I majored in American history and knew all the words to Schoolhouse Rock, I actually didn't really know how our government worked. So I didn't even know where to get started. 
But I did know that Mitch McConnell was a big part of the story. You know, when I was working in the Obama White House, there was just this sense of this guy understands something the rest of us don't because he seems very good at manipulating the system so that the system works for him. Um, unfortunately, doesn't tend to work well for the rest of us, but it works well for Mitch McConnell and his allies. So I said, you know what I have to do? Obviously, I got to go to Louisville and crash a frat party at Mitch McConnell's old frat house. Um, one thing I learned, I will say, in the process was that crashing a frat party in your 30s is a very different experience than crashing a frat party in your 20s. This is a, uh, you know, I, I'm a late stage millennial. I'm 33. So this is a thing that I learned uh, perhaps, um, you know, would have been more hijinksy earlier. Sadly, I never made it into the frat house. But um, I think it was worth trying anyway, because one of the crazy things I learned is that on campus at the University of Louisville, there is this rumor, and I don't think that it's exactly true, but it is persistent. Everybody there seems to believe that Mitch McConnell owns the land underneath his former frat house, or he owns the frat house entirely, or some version of that. And people think that because of this, the, the FITAUs, the members of Mitch McConnell's former frat, are allowed to break rules that everyone else can't break. And I do think that is true. I mean, you go on frat row on Louisville. When I, when I was there, every house is totally clean, organized, nothing going on. And then you get to the FITAU house, and it's on the, the prime real estate and, you know, it looks like Animal House, right? There's a there's an armchair on the roof. There's like a beat up old couch on the porch. And this sense of Mitch McConnell and his team play by one set of rules. And the rest of us have to play by another far less advantageous set of rules. That is happening on a college campus. And more importantly, it's happening across the country where it feels like there's a small group of well-connected people for whom our current system of government is working very well. And then there's millions upon millions of us who are feeling like our government is not representing us the way it's supposed to. That's a, that's a really interesting connection. Thank you for that. Um, so I want to transition a little bit to our current political days. So having seen up close and personal the rigors of the office, how does President Trump really manage to not do anything all day, every day, except, of course, tweet and play golf? but still maintain a lock on maybe about 40% of America? That's a great question, and I don't claim to know the answer. Um, I would say a couple of things. I don't. President Trump plays a lot of golf, clearly. Um, I don't necessarily begrudge him playing golf, although I begrudge him charging taxpayers uh, to play golf. You know, Every time he goes, right, the Secret Service, and therefore we are paying him a lot of money because he only plays at his own clubs. Um, I think that the, the issue here is that if you look at what Trump has done, he's actually, and I hate to say it, accomplished a pretty good amount. Um, not legislatively, but if you look at what he's done on immigration and on through some of his executive orders, um, you know, if you look at the tax cuts that he passed, um, you know, if you think about his base being motivated primarily by racial anxiety, right, the sense that um, you know there's a new shift in America and that, that America is about to become a lot less white and that that's scary for some people. And then also that his base was, I think, parts of his base were motivated by good old fashioned, we want our tax cuts. Uh, President Trump delivered in some pretty compelling ways. So I think that the, the fact that he is a bad person, just objectively a bad person, um, I don't think is enough to push his base away. Now, Ever since the pandemic started, we are seeing a whole different 
political calculus. And I do think that bit by bit, more and more Republicans are saying, okay, this is not worth it. I don't mind the the tweets that make me embarrassed. I don't mind the occasional racist comment, uh, but I do mind the fact that 140,000 and counting Americans have died. So I think we're suddenly seeing the political calculus start to shift for Trump. I don't know how how low his floor is, uh, but I don't think we've seen it yet. My guess is it would be somewhere around like 30, 31% rather than 40%. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of crazy that it took a pandemic like this to finally see some cracks in the base. And so you being, you know, a writer, a person who communicates um, professionally for a living, looking at Democratic campaigns across the country right now, different messages they're trying out. Do you have any thoughts on kind of what you think the most effective message is to either turn out Democrats who aren't especially excited or persuade moderates and independents who don't love Trump but don't love the Democratic message either? I would let me start by saying, you know, it's amazing. You said it's amazing that 40 percent of the country stays with Trump. In some ways, that is amazing. But I, I also want to point out in many, many ways, Trump has kind of redefined our standards downward. And this is one of them. When I worked in the Obama White House, we almost never hit 40% approval. And when we were in the low 40s, which did happen on a few occasions, it was everyone was anxious and miserable. I mean, some some people had kind of been through it before. Some people maybe had better temperaments than I did and, you know, didn't let it show. But I mean, I described it in my first book um, after healthcare.gov didn't work at first and our approvals were in the low 40s, it felt like everyone in the building had been broken up with on the same day. And that's Tuesday for Donald Trump. I mean, that that's happening almost every day of his presidency. So this is a historically unpopular president. Now, I certainly think he should be more unpopular objectively, but the, the flip side of that, and this goes to something we were talking about at the very beginning of the episode, I do think that the partisan media bubble, and particularly the Fox News bubble and the conservative media bubble, are able to keep that 40% of the country in line. And to connect all of these dots, the question now is, can you can Mitch McConnell recreate our political system so that you only need 40% of the country in order to maintain control? So, And I think that's an open question. I think there's a lot we have to do to make sure that doesn't happen. So to, to talk about this issue of what um, different candidates ought to be doing. I would say, first of all, it depends on the race, right? Every candidate is in a different place. Every candidate is trying to represent a different set, set of constituents. But I do think that this particular moment is very clarifying and fairly simple. You know, it goes back to the old Ronald Reagan question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? And I think ultimately, if you have people walking into the booth saying, is this the best we can do? Uh, then Democrats are going to have a very good November. Um, you know, I, I think there are potentially ways for Republicans to get around that, but right now it's an uphill battle for them, and and the question is going to be whether Democrats can kind of press the advantage. And, and it's and I say that purely politically because I don't think anyone would say, oh, this is great. It's not great, but the silver lining might be that politicians can be held accountable. What's up, everybody? We're going to take a quick break from the podcast and let you know that Millennial Politics is now on Spotify, Stitcher, the Google App Store, and iTunes, basically anywhere you get your podcast. If you like the show and like hearing from previous guests, such as Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former presidential candidate Andrew Yang, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, and many more, make sure you subscribe, give us five stars, and leave a review. High ratings and good reviews are some of the best ways people can find us. 
And if you want to see us continue doing this work, we hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So let's pivot now to to have that conversation about solutions, right? So the issues that uh, we both talked about, voter suppression, gerrymandering, the filibuster, the the judicial nomination process, campaign finance, right-wing media. If we had to rank order the problems facing us, which in your opinion should take first priority? Or are there any that we could actually work on concurrently at the same time? Most of them we could work on concurrently. But just for fun, I'm going to I'm going to start by answering the question about ranking. I will say I think the Senate filibuster is almost certainly going to be the first big problem because you can't work on a lot of these problems concurrently or at all if Republicans continue to obstruct if they end up in the minority. So the first thing you have to do is you have to win all three branches of government. That's not how our democracy should function. Um, It's not how our democracy has to function in the future, but it's how our democracy functions today. So let's say that on January 21st, 2021, Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House. That's what I refer to as the Skywalker window, because it's like the end of star, star, the first Star Wars movie where you know Luke Skywalker has like this tiny little opening in the Death Star, but you make that shot and everything changes. You, know, you could pass one law and deal with campaign finance, immigration, voting rights, DC statehood, Puerto Rican statehood, all of these things that would make an enormous difference. But you're almost certainly never going to be able to do that if you need 60 Senate votes to get any bill through the Senate. So I think that odds are extremely good that in the the beginning of a potential Biden administration, which certainly is a long ways off, and I'm, I'm not taking anything for granted, but in the beginning of a potential Biden administration, we will see more obstruction. And then the president and his allies in Congress would have to decide, are we going to get nothing done, but hold on to power for a little bit? and lock in some stuff so that we can obstruct in the future? Or are we going to pass laws again? And if so, it's time to get rid of the filibuster. Are you concerned at all about potential downstream effects of getting rid of the filibuster? I know it's unpopular to say because Democrats have been burned by it several times, uh, especially when McConnell used the nuclear option to get uh, Kavanaugh and, and Gorsuch on the court. But are you concerned that if and when Democrats are in the majority, it will just flip back? I mean, it becomes less like the Senate and more like the House, right? Of course I'm concerned. In fact, I would go so far as to say that there are going to be negative unintended consequences to getting rid of the filibuster. We know that. One reason we know it, by the way, is that the House of Representatives used to have a filibuster in the 1800s, in the the late 1800s. They got rid of the filibuster. At the time, Republicans were the party that believed in a bigger government, a more active government. And Republicans said, we've we've had enough of this Democratic obstruction in the House. Um, We are going to end the filibuster. And it did create some unintended consequences. There's no question that without the filibuster, the first few years of Trump's presidency would have been worse. However, when I talk to a lot of people who I consider institutionalists about the filibuster, I, I expected them to point out what you just did, which is to say there are unintended consequences and say, for that reason... We have to keep the filibuster. Maybe we reform it. And instead, what they kept coming back to was, ultimately, the moment Republicans decide the filibuster isn't working well for them anymore, 
they're going to get rid of it. And so the question is not if the filibuster is going to go away. The question is when. And that means the real question is who's in charge when the filibuster finally goes. So my view is get rid of the filibuster and then immediately pass a bunch of things that are going to strengthen our democracy so that the next time Democrats are in the minority, you can't, it's, you, you don't have the opportunity to wreck the country through the legislative process the way, frankly, Trump and McConnell would have in 2017. So I think the the root of your question actually comes down to who is more comfortable exercising power, right? So much of politics is about accumulating power and then leveraging it once you have it, right? And McConnell, Republicans, and Donald Trump, they seem to be pretty comfortable exercising powers that are bestowed upon them by the Constitution and even powers that are not bestowed upon them by the Constitution. Do you think Democrats need to play a little bit more hardball and use the power when they have it? I wouldn't describe it exactly in those terms. So I think that if you look at McConnell and Trump, it is true that they, you know, I think the the phrase that I've heard kind of bounced around is is constitutional hardball, right? They'll go as far as kind of the letter of the law allows. That is true. And I don't think the Democrats necessarily need to do that in the same way. But more important than whether you're willing to use power is to think about the, the ends rather than the means. What do you want to use power for? And if you look at McConnell in particular, but also Trump, everything, every exercise of power is ultimately just about amassing more power, right? It's winning for the sake of winning. And I think that Democrats ought to be more comfortable using the tools available to them that in the Constitution and also just generally um, in order to not just win elections, but in order to make the, the playing field fairer. But then I think they shouldn't go farther than that. I don't think Democrats should be trying to create a one-party democracy where Democrats always win. I think they should be trying to create a real system of government that represents the people where, for the most part, what we want, we get. And certainly where, over the long term, we have the chance to choose and shape our own future. Uh, Without that, you don't have a democracy at all. And the last thing I would say is, I don't think that Democrats should be in the business of shattering norms for no reason. But I do think Democrats have to acknowledge when norms have already been shattered. So a good example of this would be around judges and court packing. Uh, I don't believe that court packing is a good idea. But if you look at what Mitch McConnell has done and what the conservative movement more broadly has done for decades, they've already packed the court, not just the Supreme Court, by the way. They've, They've packed the bench more broadly. So we need to recognize that the courts have been packed and now say that norm seems to have disappeared. How do we replace it with something new? that hopefully accomplishes the same purpose. Um, Because if we do nothing, that doesn't work. Yeah, I I think I definitely agree on that point. It feels like Republicans have been breaking norms that have been held for for years, and Democrats are still afraid to do that, even though the norms have essentially disappeared because of what McConnell and others have done. Um, And so transitioning, you know, back to your job as a speechwriter in the White House, Obama was known for his his really great speeches. Um, What did you work on that we might know? Do you have maybe a favorite speech you wrote for the president or an event that you struggled or were excited to write something for specifically? The speeches I worked on that you're probably most familiar with are the White House Correspondents' Dinners. Um, I worked on the the kind of like the comedy monologues that President Obama would do every year. So I was responsible for sort of curating and putting together those monologues from 2012 to 2016. And those were team efforts. So I didn't write all the jokes, but the way I always put it is, you know, if they'd gone badly, it would have been my fault. And those were really fun. It was interesting to get to work with the president 
in this way where you got to see how he operated, um, but where the stakes were a lot lower than most of the decisions he had to make. So, you know, for, for me, whether a joke ends up in the speech was a really big deal. But for President Obama, deciding whether or not a joke goes in the speech was probably, you know, the least important thing he would do that year. So it, it was that was really just a fascinating window. Plus, it was tons of fun, right? Like we, we brought Keegan Michael Key in. He played Luther, Obama's anger translator. Like, you know, I, these were things I did not anticipate ever getting to do when I was, uh, you know, writing for a humor magazine in college. Um, the other speeches I worked on, I worked on a lot of domestic policy speeches. Um, you know, uh, they weren't the way we, we did things in the Obama White House. Usually the chief speechwriter would take the biggest speeches, the State of the Union or something like that. Um, and then we would do, we kind of divvy up the remaining speeches. So I got to work on all sorts of, you know, uh, what we would call message events, like the president goes to a place, announces a thing, um, and then lots of other, you know, pieces. Uh, and that really depends on, uh, you know, depends on the speech. I mean, the stuff I worked on that I was most proud of was probably the criminal justice reform speeches toward the end of President Obama's second term. Uh, but, you know, I got to work on all sorts of different things, which was, it was a great experience. So, David, you mentioned at the top of the interview that you have a few potentially embarrassing stories of your time in the White House. Is there one in particular that you're comfortable sharing with our audience? I'm trying to think. I mean, there's a whole bunch, <laughs> sadly. Uh, it's just been a while now. So this is, this is why I had to make sure to write it down. You know, I, I, it's funny <laughs> when, when you have an experience like that, uh, you know, everyone said take notes, but I didn't take notes because I was worried. You know, I was very careful. I said, I don't want anything that could be subpoenaed, um, even if it was like, you know, obviously I was not there doing anything that would be uh, even by like uh, Republican de definitions scandalous. But I was just, I wanted to be very careful. But I, I did, I'm glad that after I left, I wrote everything down and had a year to really think about it, write about it, because, uh, you know, you do start to forget those stories. So, uh, but the, uh, the most embarrassing thing that happened to me was that I uh, was changing my clothes in the closet of Air Force One, and someone opened the door. And so I ended up in my underwear, uh, sort of exposed to the entire staff in, um, on the guest cabin of Air Force One. Which was oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, apparent. I thought I thought this was very clever because the line Air Force One is you know uh, spoiler alert it's a cool plane, um, but it does not have a ton of bathrooms, and so when people are changing on overnight flights, the line gets really really long. And my speech was the first speech of the day. We were going to Germany, and President Obama was giving this speech shortly after he hit the ground. You know, after getting on the tarmac, and um, I was in Hulk themed pajamas because I didn't really have a lot of sleepwear. And so I couldn't, you know, I just grabbed the first thing that I could find. And it was these Hulk pajamas from my freshman year of college. So I thought, okay, if President Obama wants to go over this speech, you know, first thing on his day, I'm going to have to walk into the senior staff cabin, like in my Hulk pajamas and a t-shirt to go over this thing. I got to change. So I ducked into the coat closet, thought this was brilliant. And then right as I was putting on my suit, someone opened the door. And of course, there I am. And apparently this was uh, such a, a, um, a widely retold story that other like pretty senior staffers would replicate it on other foreign trips that I was not a part of. So I guess I left my my imprint <laughs> on the <laughs> You became a meme White of the Obama White House. That's right. I was like a little, uh, it was like a very internal meme. Uh, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> that's awesome. Thank you. Um, so wrapping up, our last question 
how can people find you online, stay connected with you after the episode, um, things like that? Sure. Well, so my website, where you can also, I, I decided uh, to just throw up a chapter of my book online. Um, and so you can read about one of the things I care about most right now these days is long lines at the polls. And we've seen this in all these primary elections. And long lines are not just a problem in our democracy. Um, they're a problem that affects non-white voters in disproportionate ways. So it's if you care about our democracy or if you care about racial justice more broadly, long lines at the polls are a serious concern and there's stuff we can do about it. So I put this chapter just up for free to read on my website, davidlitbooks.com. So you can read that. And I hope it gives you a flavor of democracy in one book or less more broadly. Um, and then on social media, I'm at David Litt, two T's, uh, on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm just David Litt at Facebook. I don't know how I managed to, uh, you know, to get my, my full name without having to have any like uh, underscores or anything. But um, I, I pulled it off. Very nice. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for coming on and for your time. And on a personal note, it was great to connect. Yeah, this was really fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, our pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you as always. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or Stitcher. Follow us on social media at Politics. Subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Politics. And of course, stay tuned for our next episode. Thanks. Mm-hmm.